This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a sneak preview of an issue of the Dayton Jewish Observer. The first article from the Observer, Rotations on Hold, Medical Student Volunteers for Public Health Department. With hospital rotations on hold because of the coronavirus this semester, Jessica Sokol, a third-year student with Wright State University Boonshaft School of Medicine, is volunteering as assistant to Dr. Michael Doan, Medical Director of Public Health, Dayton, and Montgomery County. I'm helping out with the that he works on, said Sokol, originally from San Antonio. She began at the health department March 23rd. I attend a lot of meetings and conference calls within the health department and with the state, getting updated, making sure we know what other counties are doing. I occasionally help with the hotline that people call into when they have questions or report businesses that are not complying with state orders. She works with the team that establishes procedures for public health employees and first responders about what to do if they get sick and what personal protection equipment they should wear. She's also assisted on a weekly Facebook Live event, Ask the Doc, with Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley and Doan, who answers viewers' questions. Sokol knew Doan from his guest lectures in some of her classes. Through the medical school's Physician Leadership Development Program, she received her master's degree in public health as part of her five-year medical degree program. Two months ago, she reached out to Doan to set up an elective with him for spring 2021. And then, when all of this craziness happened, he reached out to me, Sokol said. He asked me if I was free to come and volunteer with him now, since I'm not working in a hospital, which is what I would have been doing right now. Sokol's understanding is that hospitals don't want to use their limited personal protective equipment on medical students. Someone else has to see the patients that we see anyway. We don't want to be a drain on the supplies. Along with her three nine-hour days each week with the health department, Sokol keeps up with her medical school classes all online this semester. They were calling it fourth-year boot camp, sessions to get us ready for our fourth year of medical school, for applying for residencies. I'll go more to the health department once I have more free time in May. She plans to practice family medicine. The health department also has her organizing other medical students to come for monthly volunteer rotations there. Sokol helps coordinate their work, too. We want students to have learning opportunities, and they can't be in the hospital, she said. And next with the Observer, first COVID-19 survivor to donate plasma in Dayton area is Chabad Rabbi Sun. Mendel Mangel and his brother Laser of Crown Heights, Brooklyn, drove home to Dayton in mid-March to get away from the COVID-19 surge about to hit the New York area. He had no idea it had already hit him. But by the time the Mengel family sat down for its Passover seders, Mendel was in the clear from the coronavirus and had become the first person to recover from COVID-19 to donate plasma in Montgomery County. Mendel donated his plasma April 6th at the Community Blood Center under the auspices of the new Dayton COVID-19 Convalescent Plasma Project, comprising the Dayton area's hospital systems, working with the federal government. Rabbi Nachem Engel, who directs Chabad of Greater Dayton with his wife, Devorah, described the three weeks leading up to Pesach in their home as an emotional roller coaster. He had already brought his parents, ages 86 and 81, from Crown Heights to live in his home in Oakwood, 
on March 15th in fear for their health. Mengel's father, Rabbi Nissen Mengel, is a survivor of Auschwitz. Both, Mengel said, have no underlying health issues. This was before they closed anything in New York, Mengel said. The next day, Mendel and Laser called him. My kids said, we're going to be locked in our homes, everybody's working from home, and it's going to be quite lonely, so we would like to come home too. We told them, you guys can come home, but understand that you're going to be quarantined because you were exposed to people that have been found to be infected. Before there were coronavirus preventative measures in Crown Heights, Mengel said, Mendel and Laser had celebrated Purim and Shabbat there. Crown Heights is the epicenter of the Chabad-Lubavitch movement. Everyone in New York was just assuming they were exposed, said Mendel, 20, who works in marketing for an online skincare company. After arriving at his parents' house, Mendel started getting mild sin- symptoms, a headache and some aching. With the grandparents in the house, the Mengels took Mendel and Laser to be tested March 19th for COVID-19 at the University of Dayton. Four days later, the results came back that Mendel and Laser were both negative. The thinking was there's no real reason that they have to remain quarantined, Mengel said, so the brothers came upstairs and joined the family. But after three days, on March 26, the Mengel's family physician, Dr. Martin Shear, called. The testing lab had just called him. Mendel was positive for COVID-19. What do you do now, Mengel said. Now, he was around all of us, but he had no symptoms already for a week. We sent him back to the basement. The whole family went under quarantine. All took the test for COVID-19 at UD. All came back negative April 6th. While making the rounds calling people connected to Chabad, Mangel learned of an opportunity for Mendel to help save lives of patients severely ill from the coronavirus. He spoke with a Jewish physician who happened to be associated with the Dayton COVID-19 Convalescent Plasma Project. The doctor told Mangel of an obstacle facing the plasma project. The doctors hadn't yet identified anyone in Montgomery County who had COVID-19 and was cured. I told him I think I have one in my basement, Mengel said. As it turned out, Mendel's blood type is AB positive, the universal plasma donor. Mendel went to Miami Valley Hospital's emergency room to get tested April 6th. About two and a half hours later, they told him he was negative for COVID-19. That afternoon, Mendel arrived at the community blood center to donate plasma. I was told that it's going to two people and that they started, Mendel said. All the doctors here are working so hard. Every single doctor and nurse that I've come across since this thing started is absolutely doing the hardest work to make this as fast as possible. Plasma has been used in emerging viral infections for which a treatment hasn't been identified. The plasma of the person who has recovered from a virus has antibodies to fight the virus. With FDA authorization for this project, COVID-19 survivors' plasma is infused into people who have severe COVID-19 to help battle the infection. In a statement, Community Blood Center Medical Director Dr. James Alexander announced the COVID-19 Convalescent Plasma Program was fully up and running for public donations on April 10th. The number one criteria is that someone has tested positive for COVID-19 and has been clear of all symptoms for two weeks, Alexander explained. Their physician must determine they meet the criteria before they schedule an appointment to donate. According to the Community Blood Center, the Mayo Clinic confirmed that Premier Health is the first health system in the nation 
to enroll a COVID-19 positive patient in this therapeutic treatment using that institution's protocols. Mengel said the rabbi in him sees all of this as a lesson in divine providence. Hashem, God orchestrates everything, and we are all pieces in God's master plan, he said. It teaches how vulnerable humanity is and really how little we know. So all of the frustration, all is used for a positive that now Mendel can help someone's life. Thank God our immediate family is safe, Mendel said. My family's not even close to the worst of this, but I have plenty of friends with parents that were in the hospital, grandparents that were in critical condition. One of my friends had an uncle pass away, another one of my friends his grandfather. We're nowhere near the epicenter of it here. COVID-19 survivors interested in donating plasma may sign up for the Convalescent Plasma Registry or the Community Blood Center Registry at givingblood.org. And next from The Observer, even with semester in Israel cut short, Oakwood sophomore experienced some of the most amazing weeks of her life. When Rebecca Bloomer first heard about a Semester in Israel program with the Reform Movement's high school there, she knew it was for her. I wanted to learn more about my Jewish identity and about the history of the Jewish people, Rebecca, an Oakwood High School sophomore, told the Observer in an email interview. I wanted to meet lots of other Jewish kids that were interested in the same things that I am. But because of COVID-19 social distancing measures and shutdowns in Israel and around the world, the semester, which began January 27th and was, to, was supposed to run through May 27th, ended March 17th. Even so, Rebecca, the daughter of Molly and Jeff Bloomer, said her seven weeks in Israel made for a meaningful experience. It was some of the most amazing weeks of my life and I wouldn't trade it for the world, she said. Rebecca learned of the URJ Heller High in Israel program at her summer camp, Goldman Union Camp Institute in Zionsville, Indiana. Heller High and Gucci are both programs of the Union for Reform Judaism. To make the $20,000 semester in Israel a reality, she and her family raised money through the Jewish National Fund Plant Your Way to Israel program. She also received scholarships from her congregation, Temple Israel, the Reform Movement's youth group, NIFTI, National Federation Temple Youth, and the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton. I paid extra to earn college credit for my Jewish history and Hebrew classes, she added. The first sign of trouble came when Heller High's week-long trip to Poland to learn about the Holocaust, scheduled for the end of March, was canceled. In February, all travel for students to Poland from Israel was canceled, Rebecca said. By week six of the semester, Kibbutz Tsuba, where the students lived, adjusted the number of people who could eat in its cafeteria until only 10 guests could be there at a time. Ultimately, the students would eat outside or in their apartments, Rebecca said. The students knew what was coming, even though we tried to deny the inevitable. It was March 16th when Heller High Principal Rabbi Lauren Sykes told the 87 students they would return to the United States on a chartered flight 24 hours later, along with students from other programs in Israel with various Jewish movements in the United States. No one took the news well, Rebecca said of the end of their time in Israel. Some people cried as soon as we were told the news, and for others it took more time to settle in. We embraced and tried to spend all the time that we had left together thinking positively. We know the people in charge really thought through everything, trying to figure out what was best to keep the students safe. 
When the Israeli government all ordered all tourists to leave Israel, there was nothing else to do but send us home. For the students, the departure from Israel went smoothly. Rebecca said staff spent a few sleepless nights coordinating with other Jewish youth groups to get the flight together. Rebecca's father picked her up from JFK and drove directly home, where she spent the next two weeks under quarantine. None of the students have shown symptoms since our return, she said. Rebecca continues with her Heller High classes via Zoom, Biology, English, U.S. History, Algebra II, Hebrew, and Jewish History, Land, Culture, People. This was my first time in Israel, she said. We got to go to visit the old city of Jerusalem, the city of David, Elat, Masada, and the, the Dead Sea, and Tel Aviv for Purim. She was disappointed she didn't get to Poland. My relatives were from Poland, and some of them died during the Holocaust. I was also disappointed to miss out on the sea-to-sea hike from the Sea of Galilee to the Mediterranean Sea. Rebecca intends to return to Israel when she's older. I had an amazing experience, even though it was cut short. And next from the Dayton section of The Observer, Navigating the Pandemic, updates from across the Miami Valley's Jewish community. Along with local Jewish organizations and congregations' quick changeover to virtual programming and thorough outreach to their constituents, here's a roundup of how the pandemic is playing out across the community. Leveraging its Shabbat in a Box program, Chabad of Greater Dayton distributed nearly 70 Seder meals and 60 Seder to-go kits April 8th for people to observe Passover amid social distancing. Adam Baumgarten, owner, along with his wife Lauren of Bernstein's Fine Catering, and a pared-down staff of four, prepared more than 1,000 Passover meals for the Dayton and Cincinnati areas, including at-home seders for members of Temple Beth Or and Temple Israel, and Jewish Family Services clients. These orders and Bernstein's new takeout delivery service brought the caterer back from freefall. Our business was one of the first to get hit, Adam said. We have lost 98% of our events through May. Fortunately, we've had more postponements than cancellations. Bernstein's has partnered with several local nonprofits, including JFS and Kettering Backpack, to reach families and people in need. This hasn't been easy, but I feel very confident of our survival and eventual continued growth. Jewish Family Services, which also provides delivery of meals from Bernstein's and Shabbat Yom Tov dinners from Chabad, distributed 94 Passover outreach bags to its clients. The bags included ornamental tiles with photos of flowers from Israel. The photos were taken by Jody Sobel, who provided financial support for the project with her husband, Todd. If you need assistance from Jewish Family Services or would like to volunteer to connect with seniors, call JFS Administrative Assistant Teresa Clyburn at 937-401-1551. The Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton received a loan April 20th from KeyBank through the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program, which was included in the $2 trillion stimulus package the U.S. Congress passed in March. The majority of the loan will be used to pay our staff salaries, about 49 employees, for up to eight weeks, Jewish Federation CEO Kathy Gardner said. We are not required to pay back this portion of the loan, which is fantastic news, as we have faced some serious financial burdens due to COVID-19. The Federation laid off its 17 JCC early childhood employees April 3rd and now brings them back on the payroll. 
The things they are able to do from home with virtual learning are very meaningful, Gardner said. She lauded KeyBank's customer service for helping the Federation through the process, as well as guidance from Jewish Federations of North America. Rachel Estep, who runs a business sewing children's clothing, and her friend Valerie Reed Thorne have launched Brookville Sewing Masks. So far, they've produced and distributed more than 5,000 masks at no charge for nursing homes, first responders, home health aides, and other essential personnel. We're focusing mainly on places that have little to no personal protective equipment, Rachel told The Observer. What we are making are 100% double-layer cotton mask covers. They are not medical-grade masks, but they can be used over an N95 to extend its lifespan. If no N95 is available, the masks have pockets that you can put any HEPA filter into. Brookville Sewing Masks has about 60 volunteers cutting, sewing, and distributing the masks. I'm from a long family line of first responders, Rachel said. I know what the front lines are like, and I can't imagine going into this without proper PPE. I can't give them that, but I had something I could offer. Chabad of Greater Dayton co-director Devor Mangel, who oversees the Miami Valley Mikvah, tells the Observer the woman's ritual bath is open with changes in the prepping room, including extra cleaning precautions based on recommendations from a meeting I was part of with mikvah attendants around the world. The Miami Valley Mikvah asks women with any possible symptoms of COVID-19 to be honest about her health on behalf of others and forego the mikvah that month. We ask that women prepare in their homes and only come to immerse, Devorah said. Sandy Mendelson, owner of Mendelson's, is giving away his inventory of personal protective equipment to local police, firefighters, and first responders. Sandy, whose iconic warehouse is set to close at the end of the year, told the Dayton Daily News, Dayton has been great to the Mendelssohn family, and I want to give back. At the end of March, in the face of closures of sit-down businesses, uh, business at area restaurants, Premier Produce One donated its remaining produce in Dayton to Access to Excess, which distributed it to sites that feed those in need, including St. Vincent de Paul and House of Bread. Premier Produce One, with roots in the Dayton area through the Pavlovsky family, has also pivoted to successfully focus on selling produce boxes directly to the public with contact-free curbside pickup. Lion, which manufactures, for, which manufactures first responder personal protective equipment, continues to hum along at its Dayton and Kentucky manufacturing facilities, according to Andy Schwartz, Lion's Secretary, Corporate Counsel, and Chief Procurement Officer. Safety steps are in place at Lion, as outlined by the CDC. The Dayton site was rebuilt after much of the new structure was destroyed in the tornadoes on Memorial Day 2019. Sarah and Gus Stathis, owners of the Barrel House, hope their situation will get better. When it was ordered that bars and restaurants were to close except for carryout, we decided we would stay open for carryout, but take it a day at a time, Sarah said. After one week of operating on carryout alone and discussing options every day, when the stay-at-home order was issued, we made the difficult decision to close altogether. Sarah and her full-time employee are both immunocompromised. Besides the concern of ourselves, our families, or our staff potentially getting sick, we couldn't live with ourselves if we unknowingly got any of our customers sick. Sarah and Gus, known for giving of their bar proceeds to 
nonprofits applied for a pay paycheck, uh, paycheck Protection Program loan. They were notified the funding had already been fully allocated. They've started selling gift certificates online to get a bit of money coming in. We ourselves are now a household completely without income, she said. We have to worry that if this goes on long enough, our small business will run out of money and be unable to reopen, ending our dream and losing everything we have. This is definitely an intensely terrifying time on so many levels. And next from The Observer, it's this long, slow struggle of patience and perseverance. An interview with Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Amy Acton by Jane Kaufman from our friends up the road at the Cleveland Jewish News. Dr. Amy Acton, Director of the Ohio Department of Health, called her first virtual Seder a healing experience with family and friends in which she had new insight on the Exodus story. That journey is a journey we're all on collectively, she told the Cleveland Jewish News April 9th. The symbolism is there for me. And in the Haggadah last night, there were a few parts that took me by surprise that I've interpreted anew. She said she found new meaning in lyrics of songs that spoke of the need to persevere in spite of the fact that you aren't being understood. Acton spoke to the CJN just after participating in a daily press conference with Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. She is among those taking center stage during the COVID-19 pandemic that has rocked the world. At the April 8th press conference, she spoke of Passover and her religiously blended family. Her husband, Eric Acton, is Episcopalian, she said, as are his children. Chag Sameach to all my friends, she said. I am Jewish. Even my background was a mixed background growing up, and my children were raised in the Jewish faith. She appealed to religious leaders to find ways to celebrate without congregating. One of the worst things we can do is congregate in any way that puts our population at risk, she said. Then she spoke of her own observance and traditions. We are doing a virtual Seder tonight in my family, she said. My friends dropped off. I couldn't cook. They dropped off the foods I love, and I love to cook. That's another thing I haven't shared. My matzo ball soup is the best, just saying. But you know my friends cook for me. They dropped it off on my doorstep. And we're going to be together talking about the story of the plagues, of which have very poignant meaning as we go through what we're going through. She said she has finger puppets depicting the plagues from when her children were in preschool at the JCC of Greater Columbus, where she was a board member, and that she still uses a children's agata dating from when her now adult children were young. It was probably a month ago when I said something about locusts and firstborn sons because there was a period at which every single thing you could think of wasn't happening, she said. And this was a while back, but I remember thinking of, plague pu of the plague puppets for our Seder. And sort of the importance of the fact that you do have these dark, shadowy times, but can emerge together as a people, and I see that same story and metaphor in other traditions. The Festival of Freedom came at a particularly trying time for Acton, who has been in the forefront of DeWine effort, DeWine's efforts to protect Ohioans from COVID-19. You know this was when the weather got better and people feel because we've done such a good job in Ohio, she said. 
we're not seeing the horrors of that, uh, the horrors that others are living. There are horrors going on in Ohio, I must admit that. I think as people are paying attention to the news, but they're not seeing sort of the scale of Italy or New York, and then they sort of feel that this was all for naught or a hoax. And it's quite the opposite. It's this long, slow struggle of patience and perseverance that we have to have, and our very success is begetting a different set of problems where folks sometimes don't even believe that this virus is real. During the April 9th press conference, shouting could be heard outside the state house by protesters who objected to act and stay-at-home order. It was her March 16 late-night order that suspended, uh, that superseded a judge's decision and blocked Ohio's primary election from taking place the following day. Social justice work in Israel, and more broadly, has been part of Acton's life and work. I had the opportunity more in the 1990s to spend a lot of time in Israel, pre-Intifada times, where there was a lot of coexistence work going on, she said. I was able to spend time in Palestine and had the opportunity to see children being educated and learning both Hebrew and Arabic, and people being on the same soccer team and being able to coexist, so some of those things really influenced me. She draws little distinction between volunteer and professional commitments. My work has always sort of morphed, she said. It's never stayed inside the lines of work or volunteerism, because I think the social justice threads are there. And the same things are, you know, playing out in the social determinants work and this homelessness work and things I've worked on in philanthropy. Prior to taking on her current job, Acton worked at the Columbus Foundation. There she served as Community Research and Grants Management Officer and focused on community leadership and nonprofit effectiveness, according to her biography on the Ohio Department of Health's website. In addition, the Youngstown native has more than 30 years of experience in medical practice, government and community service, healthcare policy and advocacy, academic and nonprofit administration, consulting, teaching, and data analysis. She drew parallels with her previous work and her current work and her concern regarding the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on African American and Latinos. At the April 9th press conference, she invited Dr. Anthony J. Armstrong, president of the Ohio State Medical Association, to speak on the issue. Acton previously served on the boards of Congregation Beth Tikva in Worthington, where she was a member, and Columbus Jewish Day School in New Albany, where she sent her children. She noted the school was founded on the teachings of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was famous for his civil rights activism. That was a great home for me, she said of Beth Tikva. It is a reform synagogue, but one that was started by a group of university professors, many of whom I knew, so some of the people that have passed away were also largely influential in my career. Acton, 54, has taught at The Ohio State University in Columbus, where she also received her master's degree in public health. She received her medical degree at North, Northeastern Ohio University College of Medicine in Rootstown. Acton's early and frank advice to Ohioans to help flatten the curve and her frequent promises to tell Ohioans what we know when we know it have inspired compliance from residents across the state even as the virus has spread. In reflecting on the pandemic, Acton said there have been many difficult decisions. 
It has been truly a gauntlet, she said. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat any of it. I know there's a lot of social media things out there, but it has been, I think, probably the most difficult thing for me was recognizing early on that something was not right. She suspected Ohio had community spread prior to having the tools to head off the virus. And that's when I realized that there wasn't a perfect playbook for this outbreak, that it was going to be so huge and unprecedented in our lifetime, and that our infrastructure throughout our country had really been neglected in terms of this work, in terms of public health, she said. The blessing in that is that I have a governor that's very deeply committed to the health and well-being of Ohioans, and he really digs deeply, asks the hard questions, and was able to really learn from the science and really think proactively to protect Ohioans. She also said he has tremendous energy. I mean, he pushes all of us, Acton said. He's 73 years old and I'm exhausted at 54. I can't keep up with him. That's no joke. And I went to Haiti with him and his wife, Fran, because uh, they do a lot of work in Haiti on behalf of their daughter who died, Becky, and I could not keep up with him. He just so does not want to see anyone get hurt or one doctor have to make a difficult decision like we see all around the world. And so that compassion, I think, is very authentic. I hope people can see that. And people have all different views and all different politics, but that kind of thing definitely falls away, and that is maybe one of the gifts of this moment. Acton said Ohioans' efforts have paid off, flattening the curve so that health care workers have time to respond and hospitals have adequate beds and ventilators during the surge. The good news is we bought some extra time to build up our hospital system, our nursing homes, our prisons, to really be more prepared and have the best outcome possible, she said. At the April 9th press conference, Acton spoke of an emerging, uh, an emerging plan that will lead Ohio out of the crisis, but said she still has deep concerns. It's going to be a long journey, a year to two in length, before we really have immunity in our whole population, she said. So my worry is this quick success we've had, this enormous success we've had, that with the good weather or with just our exhaustion with it, and that's known, that's been studied too, that people let up and that we'll see spikes and resurgences. So you know I worry that people will have the faith, the trust to kind of carry on through this period. It's a war, but it's a silent enemy. And next from The Observer, Columbus Deaf Interpreter Colleagues Amass Social Media Following by Abby Simerman from the Columbus Jewish News. For Marla Berkowitz, Ohio's only certified deaf interpreter and one of three featured in Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's daily press conferences about the COVID-19 pandemic, her profession and responsibility at a time of crisis are sacred. The responsibility is enormous when it comes to interpreting for the public, especially during crisis times, Berkowitz explained via email. Deaf people who use American Sign Language deserve to have first-hand information at the same time as their hearing counterparts about their health and safety. Berkowitz, who is deaf, lives in the Columbus area and is a senior lecturer at The Ohio State University in Columbus. She is married to Sharice Hine, who is also deaf. They're not members of a local synagogue, but Berkowitz was an active member of B'nai Jeshurun in Manhattan for 20 years, before she moved to Columbus.
She has a master's degree in deaf studies from New York University and another in Jewish studies from Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. When I lived in New York, I did some interpreting work within the Jewish community, she said. Being Jewish affects my work because I've always loved learning, being inquisitive, and being a cultural bridge between deaf and hearing worlds. In 2008, she was president of the Jewish Deaf Congress, which serves people who are Jewish and deaf, primarily in North America. She also co-wrote a book with Judith A. Jonas, Deaf and Hearing Siblings in Conversation. Berkowitz said she was chosen to be an interpreter for DeWine's press conferences because she has experience in high-profile work. I've done conferences internationally, nationally, statewide, and on local levels, she said. In addition, I've done court-related work, which includes a murder trial. For Ohioans watching press conferences with Berkowitz and the other two interpreters, Christy Horn of Deaf Services Center in Worthington and Lena Smith of Opportunities for Ohioans with Disabilities, both of whom are hearing, has become a daily ritual full of information and fascination. Some of us deaf people are native ASL users, Language is clear and accessible to those who use the language, too. Other deaf people who rely on English, spoken, and or print can use closed captioning to stay informed, whereas other deaf people who are ASL users do not have an equivalence with access to information to make informed decisions in their lives, she said, adding that deaf audiences culturally can relate more to deaf interpreters. Viewers often comment on her dramatic facial expressions, which she said is part of ASL. In addition to the emotions affect, we also have grammar markers which indicate whether the speaker is authoritative, calming, sarcastic, etc. All of those are heard as vocal intonations which deaf people do not hear. In other words, it adds nuance, she said. To convey a message such as stay home requires a stern face to emphasize it. Hearing people have told Berkowitz she's a theatrical sign language interpreter. It is our language, not the performance part, that makes us seem theatrical, she said. I think people just have never seen us in the spotlight and assume it's a performance, but we are just doing our jobs. Deaf interpreters and hearing ASL interpreters are part of a close-knit community where respect for ASL and deaf perspective, humor, and willingness to communicate openly and honestly were our best practices for the deaf hearing team to work effectively, she said. Because the press conferences run at least an hour, sometimes more, and the messages relayed are complex, the three interpreters generally take turns. When Berkowitz is interpreting, Horn and Smith listen to the governor and other speakers and then sign the information to Berkowitz, who conveys it on camera to viewers. Some viewers refer to the three interpreters as a social media phenomenon, which Berkowitz says gives her a great feeling. She never imagined there would be a Facebook page dedicated to their work, COVID-19, Marla Berkowitz, and other amazing interpreters fan group. People are having fun, feel inspired, sense the calm in the midst of the storm, and are feeling less scared for what they need to know to protect themselves, she said. To me, if that's what it takes, I can sleep at night knowing I've made a difference. And next from the religion section of The Observer, For authorities of Jewish law, coronavirus has caused unprecedented flurry of questions by Ben Harris, JTA. As the coronavirus pandemic forced Jews around the world to navigate a Passover in which large family gatherings were all but impossible, 
an unusual question posed to a group of Israeli rabbis led to an extraordinary answer. The question was whether it might be permissible for families to use internet-enabled video conferencing to celebrate the Passover Seder together even as they were sequestered in separate homes. Orthodox Jewish practice normally prohibits the use of electronics on the Sabbath and Jewish festivals, but might the unprecedented restrictions suddenly thrust upon billions of people permit an exception? Remarkably, 14 Sephardic rabbis answered in the affirmative. Some conditions were attached. The computer would have to be enabled prior to the onset of Passover and remain untouched for the duration of the holiday, and the leniency would only apply to the current emergency. But given the unique importance of the Seder ritual and the extreme conditions now in effect, the rabbis wrote, the use of video conferencing technology is permitted to remove sadness from adults and the elderly, to give them the motivation to continue to fight for their lives, and to avoid depression and mental weakness, which could bring them to despair of life. The coronavirus pandemic has upended so many parts of life that it's perhaps little surprise that it's also having a significant impact on the field of Jewish law, or halakha. The sudden impossibility of once routine facets of observant Jewish life has generated a surge in questions never considered before, and modern technology means that Jews the world over are more able than ever to ask those questions and share their answers. I don't think there's ever been anything like this because of the proliferation of questions and because of the extraordinary means of communications, said David Berger, a historian and dean of the Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. Among the questions rabbis have had to confront during the corona crisis, is it permissible to constitute a Jewish prayer quorum over internet-enabled video conference? Can married couples be physically intimate if the woman cannot immerse in a ritual bath because they have closed for public health reasons? How should burials be handled if authorities prohibit Jewish rituals around the preparation of bodies? Can synagogue services be live-streamed on Shabbat? Rabbis are also beginning to consider some agonizing possibilities. Several conservative movement authorities have published papers about what Jewish ethics have to say about medical triage, anticipating a moment when doctors may have to make difficult choices about who gets treatment. This has been Yomam Balayala. It's been day and night, said Rabbi Elliot Dorf, the co-chair of the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards, the conservative movement's authority on questions of Jewish law. Once this is all over, this is going to be a really interesting case study of how halakha evolves quickly when it needs to. In Romania, the government's recent declaration that any coronavirus fatalities had to be buried immediately presented Chief Rabbi Rafael Schaefer with a tortuous dilemma. What if a Jewish person died on Shabbat? Burying the body immediately would have resulted in a clear violation of the Jewish Sabbath, but allowing the body to be cremated is also a severe violation of Jewish law. The burial should be done on Shabbat if necessary, Schaefer told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency after consulting with rabbinic authorities in Israel. If it's the only possibility to avoid cremation, then it should be done on Shabbat by non-Jews. For the moment, 
that situation remains in the realm of the theoretical, but other halachic questions are of urgent necessity. Many of the recent opinions have explicitly invoked the principle of she'at hadchak, literally time of pressure, a concept in Jewish law that permits a reliance on less authoritative opinions in emergency situations. No one thinks you can permit biblical violations for pressure that doesn't amount to threatening lives, said Rabbi Aryeh Clapper, the Orthodox Dean of the Center for Modern Torah Scholarship. But maybe you can rely on less authoritative understandings of what the biblical prohibition is. The conservative movement, which tends to take a more flexible line on matters of Jewish law than Orthodox authorities, has supported a number of leniencies under the rubric of She'at Hadchak. In March, Dorf and his law committee co-chair, Rabbi Pamela Barmesh, issued an opinion permitting a prayer quorum to be constituted over Internet-enabled video conference. The opinion, which temporarily suspended a nearly unanimous 2001 ruling that such a quorum was not permissible, would enable the recitation of the mourner's Kaddish by people isolated in their homes. Common practice is that the mourner's prayer can only be said if ten Jewish adults are gathered in one physical location. The law committee also has expressed support for loosening various restrictions around physical touch between married couples should Jewish ritual bats be forced to close. Couples that closely observe Jewish law traditionally refrain from any form of touch for the period of the woman's menstruation and for a week after, resuming contact only after immersion in a mikvah. But the committee posted a letter on its website from Rabbi Joshua Heller asserting that under certain circumstances and only for the period of the coronavirus crisis, a woman could resume sexual relations with her husband after showering in 11 and a quarter gallons of water, a rough approximation of the Talmudic measure of 40 kabim. I think we are learning from earlier historical epochs of crisis, at taking inspiration from the flexibility that our predecessors showed, said Rabbi Daniel Nevins, a committee member and dean of the rabbinical school at the Jewish Theological Seminary. To be sure, not all rabbis have accepted these leniencies. After Rabbi Daniel Sperber, a liberal Orthodox rabbi in Israel, issued an opinion permitting some forms of physical touch between married couples, should ritual baths become inaccessible, another Israeli Orthodox rabbi, Shmuel Eliyahu, called the opinion a complete mistake. Israel's two chief rabbis, David Lau and Yitzhak Yosef, said the opinion permitting video conferencing at the Seder was unqualified. And Rabbi Herschel Schachter, a leading Orthodox authority at Yeshiva University, wrote recently that a prayer quorum could not be constituted by participants standing on nearby porches, even if they could all see each other. The ten men must be standing in the same room, Schachter wrote. But Schachter, who has personally published no less than a dozen opinions on matters related to coronavirus, has shown flexibility in other areas. Schachter has ruled that a patient discharged from a hospital on Shabbat can be driven home by a family member because it's dangerous to remain in the hospital longer than necessary, and taxis carry their own risks of coronavirus transmission. He has said that isolated individuals who suffer from psychological conditions might endanger their lives if they were unable to communicate with family, may use phone or internet to communicate on a Jewish holiday. 
and in a ruling that had wide applicability when many people prepared to host Passover meals for the first time, he suggested a workaround for the obligation of immersing utensils in a ritual bathhouse before using them. Since baths are now closed for such purposes, Schachter ruled that one could use the utensils without immersion by first declaring them legally ownerless, a workaround that would normally not be permitted. Many rabbis have expressed concern that such loosening of the rules, even if expressly done only to address a pressing and presumably temporary need, might nevertheless create new norms of behavior that will outlast the current crisis. If so, it wouldn't be the first time. According to a recent article by Rabbi Ellie Fisher, during the 19th century cholera epidemic, there were so many mourners that Rabbi Akiva Eger, who led the Jewish community in Poznan, Poland, ruled that it was permissible for many mourners to recite the mourner's Kaddish simultaneously. At the time, the practice was that only one person recited Kaddish at a time. Given the numbers of the dead, that practice would have left people with few opportunities to recite the mourner's prayer. The practice of reciting the mourner's Kaddish as a group remains the dominant one in synagogues today. I do not think that our people are wise enough and insightful enough to understand the difference between this crisis situation and normal situations, Barmash said. And I think, in some sense, that fear is giving in to a low opinion of our people. And I think that our people are wise and insightful and do recognize the distinction. And next, from the Jewish Observer, Abyssal Kissel with Masha Kissel. Empathetic Imagination During the Pandemic one of the strangest things about living through this pandemic is that those who shelter at home and those on the front lines occupy two different realities. For some, it feels like time has slowed down to a crawl, while others rush at breakneck speed to outpace the pandemic's devastation. For all the good, for the good of all, we need to bridge the distance between these experiences. During this time, an exercise in empathetic imagination is just as important as government-issued mandates to stay at home. It's human nature to shut out everything beyond the bubble of our personal circumstances during a time of fear and uncertainty, and it's easy to be lulled into a delusion that the danger isn't real if we don't personally see it or feel it. As infectious disease specialist Dr. Emily Landon from University of Chicago has put it, a successful shelter-in-place means you're going to feel like it was all for nothing. And you'd be right. Because nothing means that nothing happened to your family, and that's what we're going for here. But at a time when every human fate depends on actions of the collective, I see a rupture in understanding the importance of social distancing. Every day I see examples of reckless behavior around my neighborhood, people chat clustered on the street corner, shake hands, groups of high school students run in tight formations. With utter disregard for human life, some religious congregations are still holding services. The invisibility of the novel coronavirus makes the pandemic feel prosaic. For many, days are dulled by genteel boredom. Hours are filled with homeschooling, Netflix, baking projects, and walks around the block as we wish each other to hang in there from six feet away. We try to spice up the blandness of this existence. I pour extra hot sauce on my breakfast eggs. I feel an urge to take a risk. What if I were to burst into song and dance during my Zoom lecture for English 100? 
What if it goes viral? I imagine the humiliating zing of internet embarrassment. How would that feel? And what if, on my daily walk, I press the button at the stoplight with my finger instead of my elbow, and then touch my face? I pinch the skin on my wrist to prevent myself from doing something stupid. The small pain is an event. My self-destructive thoughts still try to break me out of my still-life cocoon. Maybe all of us stay-at-homes will discover some latent masochistic tendencies in quarantine. Locked in place, I travel through time. I could be living on my suns- out my sunset years. I could be five and lost in play. Or I could be 16 dream- uh, daydreaming to sonic youth's goo blasting on my headphones. Some days a gauzy serenity wraps around our home life. In those moments when my kids are quietly immersed in books, I am filled with gratitude for this wrinkle in time. But I know that this peaceful pause is a mirage of privilege. For those on the front lines of the pandemic, especially healthcare professionals in hotspots, time is a killing machine. Doctors and nurses spend their days in fevered calculations. How many hospital beds are left? How many ventilators? How many people have I touched today? How many days before I get sick, too? Behind protective gear, like astronauts on a spacewalk, their lives are tethered to chance. The essential workers forced into heroism in hospitals, pharmacies, and grocery stores did not sign up for this level of risk. Their safety depends on reducing the number of infected patients, infected customers. It may not feel like it, but our split-screen realities are an interconnected system that can preserve life or cause more death. Imagine seeing the fear in your patient's eyes, hearing them beg to see their loved ones before they die, watching them deteriorate, and be unable to help, to be unable to help, to know that you or your loved one might be next. Those of us who feel far away from this horror all play a role in perpetuating the tragedy or helping to stop it. We know now that this disease is primarily spread by asymptomatics. You might be a carrier and not even know it. We may not all be essential workers, but we are all essential in slowing the pandemic spread, even as it gets progressively harder to stay at home. Sure, there are even compelling reasons to reopen the country and allow people to go back to work. Landon's statement that nothing will have happened to your family ignores the millions who have lost their sources of income. My own job as a university professor is uncertain if students don't come back to campus in the fall, but the truth is that unemployment is temporary and loss of life is irreversible. I need to stay the co- we need to stay the course because currently there is no alternative. The United States did not act quickly enough to halt the spread of this deadly disease And until we have a better solution, social distancing is the only option we have. Ohio is lucky to have a governor with foresight. DeWine's early shelter-in-place order has already saved many lives. I hope and pray that local governments continue to reason wisely and ignore the president's foolish insistence to end social distancing measures too early, condemning hundreds of thousands to death. A stimulus plan focused on helping workers and providing universal health care would, would make this closure tolerable for the most financially vulnerable among us. Unfortunately, right now, we cannot rely on the federal government to protect us from the pandemic 
or from economic devastation. Here in the Miami Valley, many families will need help putting food on the table. Our empathetic imagination must extend also to those who live without a paycheck or savings. Some politicians might claim that they are acting compassionately by calling to reopen the economy, but telling people that they will avoid destitution by risking deadly infection is a horror film trade-off. Our country has enough money to help its citizens safely weather the pandemic. But until we can elect leaders with an empathetic imagination, we must become those leaders ourselves and do what we can, whenever we can, to get through this difficult time together. Masha Kissel is a lecturer in English at the University of Dayton. And next from the Jewish Family Education section of The Observer, A Heritage of Hope in the Our Dual Heritage series by Candice R. Quietek. Prevented from gathering or even extensive shopping for Passover seders this year due to COVID-19, Jews across the country were at first despairing, but hope doesn't die so easily. Synagogues, caterers, Jewish organizations, and individuals began delivering Seder meals, offering website-based Passover prep tutorials, coaching Passover cooking from home kitchens via YouTube, and using technology to create Seder experiences, offering hope, uh, offering hope to both the inexperienced and those celebrating alone. A Raleigh, North Carolina news station featured a couple who rose to the challenge, inviting a larger-than-usual crowd of 40 friends and family in six time zones around the world to their virtual Passover Seder. In Bluffton, South Carolina, dozens of non-Jewish neighbors responded when a sequestered woman, unable to get her Passover groceries delivered in time, used the Nextdoor neighborhood app to ask for help. Everything from horseradish to flowers showed up on her doorstep, and her hoped-for Seder became a reality. What is hope? In the Jewish worldview, hope isn't an instinct, it's a value and therefore a choice. Hope is the faith that, with our efforts, we can help make things better, explains Rabbi Michael Marmor. This unique perspective is founded in the Hebrew Bible. In contrast, English dictionaries often equate hope with optimism, a positive but passive mental attitude that outcomes of events or experiences will be favorable. Interestingly, there is no native Hebrew word for optimism. The Hebrew word optimiyut is a loan word from English. In Hebrew, there is only hope. According to Marmor, there are different opinions about the origin of the word hope, tikva. Journalist Jeffrey Goldberg notes, some of it comes from mikvah, a ritual bath, with hope envisioned as a resource, a pool, a solace, and a support. An alternate view suggests its origin is the cord, Hebrew word tikva, of scarlet, that saved Rahab and her family during Joshua's destruction of Jericho. If the first meaning of the word looks to sources of support, Goldberg includes, the second kind of hope is symbolized, symbolized by a thin thread leading from a complicated present to a possible future. Hope's origins are not only linguistic, the very notion of hope originates in the Torah. The ancient world believed history was cyclical, a never-ending repetition of determined events like the seasons with no meaning or goal. Individual lives were controlled by nature, the gods, or fate, offering little possibility of human influence over the future. In such a world, hope didn't exist. Until Abraham, by heeding God's call to leave his land, his birthplace, and his father's house, 
Abraham repudiated the notions of cyclical, unchangeable history and human fatalism, the very foundations of ancient history, culture, and identity. By doing so, he opened up the possibility for choice and change, linear history with an as-yet undecided future, and as a result, hope. This hope that individual efforts can make a difference in the course of one's life, the community, or history altogether is a notable theme that runs through the rest of the biblical story and beyond. As a result, Judaism itself is infused with hope. Each calendar day begins with darkness, followed by light, an inspiration to always look forward. Similarly, Hanukkah candlelighting increases the number of candles by one each night to bring ever more light to the darkness. Morning blessings are reminders to bring hope to the world around us. The High Holy Days bring the hope of forgiveness and new beginnings. Israel's national anthem is Hatikva, the hope. And the Talmud suggests one question asked during judgment in the afterlife will be, did you live with hope? In the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Judaism is the voice of hope in the conversation of mankind. Solidly rooted in the Bible from its founding, America instinctively adopted the biblical notion of hope. The founders encoded hope into the very DNA of America with the Declaration's recognition of the equality of humans before God and of its citizens' unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Inspired by the Exodus story, Abraham Lincoln pursued liberty for America's slaves. To the pilgrims and Jews, America was the hope of freedom from religious and political persecution. To dispossessed European peasants and artisans, it offered the hope of land and economic opportunity. Across the globe, America meant hope for individual liberty, adventure, refuge from wars, pogroms, and massacres, and the possibility of being judged on character rather than class. This heritage of hope is reflected in the titles of recently published books, Land of Hope, Still the Best Hope, and The Last Best Hope. And it was unexpectedly acknowledged on the popular television show America's Got Talent by a Kyrgyzstan dance crew, the South African Nadlovu Choir, and the Ukrainian Light Balance Kids. During their pre-performance interviews, each group independently expressed the same sentiment, America is the land of hope. The Bible, Judaism, Israel, America, each holds hope as a value, each is actively engaged in improving the world. But as yet, we only know the beginning of their stories. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer. And I thank you very much for listening and wishing you a wonderful week ahead.